Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host, and we're delighted you were with us today. We serve the body of Christ by encouraging and equipping followers of Jesus Christ to fully show His heart and mind in all of life. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs, which are also available as podcasts on iTunes. Audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues are available there as well, along with presentations on the works of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Speakers include William Lane Craig, Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, Mayor Ivy Taylor of San Antonio, and many others. We also ask you to consider a donation to support this program. You can donate through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and by calling 512-680-7993. And if you'd like to sponsor the program, please contact us. The radio stations are certainly our friends, but they sure like to be paid for the airtime. And now let's welcome again our special guest, John Dyer. John, thank you again for being with us today. It's good to be with you. John, at the close of the last section, we were talking about some of the values that uh, that types of technology engender. Uh, would you explore that a little bit more? You know, how to, how, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, I think a, a great present example that we're all more or less aware of is something like Twitter, for example. And what it's going to value is just shorter messages. So it was initially designed as a text messaging platform, and it famously can only hold 140 characters. So it's, it's going to value us um, condensing our thoughts. And that's certainly been um, a really great thing for, say, Proverbs. Like, uh, that's sort of the way that Solomon wrote. And sometimes you can condense a lot and do a short bit. Um, at the same time, there's some subjects that really can't be discussed in 140 characters. So Twitter is only going to be good for certain kinds of things and not for others. And usually the problem arises when we attempt to use it for something that it um, isn't good at. We try to use something where the value systems aren't quite in sync. And I think we we see this when we talk about just communication in general. Most of us heard our parents say over and over again that 90% of communication, you know, is nonverbal. It's the hand motions. It's the tone of voice. It's all of those things that we communicate a lot with things other than just our words. And so there's all these other things around it. And when we switch from being, you know, in person to say you and I right now are talking over a phone, we lose some of those hand motions that I'm making right now as I talk, right? Sure, and I'm making them right back the, at you, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we gain the priorities of the device, which is valuing being able to be distant. And that's something something new that the phone introduced into people's lives. So in the 1920s, when phones are being introduced into you know American culture and, and over in Europe, people were trying to figure out this whole new system because early on to call on meant that you would you know go over to someone's house, leave a note saying, I'm going to arrive at 2 p.m. and we're going to discuss subject X. And so everyone would be formally dressed, and conversation was a much more formal affair. But because the phone um, doesn't value what you're wearing, then all of a sudden uh, conversation can become much more informal and that you can talk about all kinds of things. So I think thinking through um, you know, text messaging or Twitter or whatever system you're using, what is it good for? And I think this is good uh, a good practice for us to think through what kinds of things we're doing. And in most good businesses now, they will really spend some time with their employees thinking through the different kinds of activities that they need to do and when a face-to-face meeting would be better and maybe when an online conference would be better so that they're able to think about how to, ha- how to be maximally efficient with their time. And I think as, as believers, we also want to be thinking through things like, you know, what is the best tool for us to use in conflict resolution? 
and what's the best tool for us to use um, for encouragement. And then also, as, um, as the famous Five Love Languages book said, that sometimes the person on the other end um, doesn't have quite the same exact value system. So it may be that there's someone that you can love better through a particular technology or by, by using maybe an older one like writing notes. And, and I think knowing that gives us access to people's hearts in ways that just using what we prefer doesn't do. Well, yeah, it's really impactful today to get a handwritten note, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think anytime, I think we're all seeing this sense that we, we, we love a world where we can get inexpensive manufactured goods. I mean, so many things of our world are, are better because of, you know, light bulbs and all the things that we can buy at the store. But I think you're also sensing that people want something of that, that handmade going back. So you, you see, you know, online web stores like Etsy selling handmade goods or even the whole craft beer movement all over the place. I'm sure it's all through Austin and San Antonio, um, and all kinds of things that get that word craft attached to it now that sure. that's a recognized commodity. I just think there's there's a sense that we, we want something um, that has that, that risk imbued in, in creativity. So the, I think one of the main differences between something that someone creates by hand and something that created by a machine is that risk of failure, you know, that it's something might not have worked. And I think we innately sense that. So knowing when to do that can be really important in our relationships. Well, one thing I've observed, my, my wife enjoys playing bridge, and it's a social gathering. But she also plays online bridge, and her partners may be from Norway or Israel or, uh, you know, somewhere in Austin. It, it ne- you never know. Uh, well, you do know. They, they, they post it. So <laughs> it, it's just fascinating how this online phenomena has, has changed how we interact on something that's, you know, often a, a social gathering. Yeah, and I think this is this is a real key area is that we we can all find you know problems with technology, and I think we need to do that. Um, but but we're always going to have this balance between finding those problems and trying to avoid them, and also just finding the, the sheer joy in some of these things that can just be um, so so life giving and so fun. Um, but taking a step back every once in a while and thinking those things through can be really really helpful for us. And you know I think one of the great writers on on this area just for life is is Albert. Borgman. He's a philosopher of technology up in the Montana area, and he um, has written some some really helpful things about just trying to to take time where you know that devices can often do things better for you, that, you know, our thermostats can produce heat better than, say, going out and chopping wood and putting it in a fireplace. But yet we also recognize that when that activity of chopping wood can be good for our bodies. And then when we put a fire in a house in Texas, when it's under 70 degrees, right, we, we make our first fire, um, that that has a, has a way of focusing the people in the house that we all kind of dr- naturally gravitate toward that. And it can create a sense of, of community and fellowship that, um, you know, some other forms can't. So that, that doesn't mean that we should turn off our heaters and, and suddenly start using wood, but it means that we would recognize uh, where in our lives are those, are those areas that we need to get what he calls a focal practice or a focal thing. And um, one of the highest ones that he talks about is the one that, you know, Jesus himself gave us, which is the Eucharist, where it is this activity of, of sharing around a table and that, that that culture of the table is something that is so important to um, our lives as kind of our Christian community and that we need to hear the Word of God spoken, but we also need to gather around the table and to reenact physical things that tell us something about who God is um, that maybe sometimes words can't. 
And so it's fascinating to me that the Eucharist is this um, profoundly technological event, is it not? I mean, God has not given us uh, Mm -hmm. grapes and grain, but he's given us, you know, wine and bread, these things that require uh, a human process to do. And so in that, you know, we see human creativity um, enacting something profoundly spiritual and, and communal. And I think when we do that intentional, intentionally, we're, we're um, not rejecting technology. We're, in fact, using it in a way that makes us more human. Well, and, and that, that brings to mind Stanley Grins, the uh, theologian who you uh, quote in your book. He talks about everything that, uh, that we make. All technology is either about being a thing, an image, a ritual, or a language. Mm-hmm. So how does that tie into what you're, what you're, you're, you're thinking about there? Yeah, so so when Stan Grins is you know talking about just trying to define what what culture is, so and I think you've you've had Andy Crouch on there before, and he's mm-hmm. done such great work in that area, and thinking about how there aren't really there isn't just one culture. So sometimes um, we posit as the church and the culture are two different things, but in fact we all have lots of miniature cultures. So our our work culture, our home culture, maybe the culture that's based on our, our race or our ethnicity. Mm-hmm. the region of the country from which we uh, were born and, and raised, all those have little things. And, and some of the elements of our of our cultures can be those things, the, the language, so maybe our, our accent, even if we have the same, uh, the same spoken language of English. Um, some of the dominant images, like in America, the Statue of Liberty is a powerful image that means a lot to us. Um, there's also, you know, little things and then also the, you know, environment around all of that. So if you think about the particular space where you worship, and that church, um, if you look around at it, whether it has, you know, pews or chairs, whether there's a only a pulpit up on front or if there's a pulpit and a table, mm-hmm. all those things are going to tell you what is valued there um, and what the culture of that particular church is and what's important to them. And the same thing with maybe your home and your work. So I think um, just taking a step back and looking at all those elements and, and what they value and what they communicate to us um, can be an important way of discovering what's going on in our lives and maybe where there's some disorder. And I think um, the, one of the great examples in Scripture of this is when you know the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and they literally don't have a culture. They've lived in Egypt for 400 years. And as they're out there in the desert of nothingness, God drops a culture on them and gives them all of these objects and symbols and rituals, all of which are meant to point to who God is and who they are and, and give them an identity. So all, all the things around us, these objects and images and rituals, they begin to shape our, our identity and our sense of community and what, we, what our really places of meaning can be and, and values. So in Israel, that was very, very explicit. And again, in the New Testament, um, God gives us uh, these symbols that we have, too, of, you know, the Eucharist and the cup and also baptism that become um, these these both rituals but also objects in the world that help to center us and ground us in our faith and in our communities. Yeah, and and for the Israelites... um you, you made the point earlier that that they were there was a cutting edge technology, and it seems that God had timed things uh, sovereignly to take advantage of that new technology. 
Yeah. So the you know the invention of you know languages as ancient as, as as the garden, but the invention of actually the alphabet, we don't start to really see it until that that Levant Sumerian area, maybe around you know 1500 BC, which is around the time we think that that Moses may have been um, operating and that God gave him the Ten Commandments. So that that writing on the stone tablets that was a, a new thing at the time, and you can see how significant it was for them just in the way they used that little phrase, it is written, because, you know, the the resources of uh, email and text messaging and cheap paper that we have today simply weren't there. So to write something down meant this is very, very, very significant. And so whenever someone prefixes something with it is written, it meant this was an important enough statement for us to write down. And uh, so that that uh, technology then begins to shape the, the identity of the Israelites, that they are a people um, not of the idols, but of the book. And even in that Ten Commandments, what is so fascinating, Neil Post makes this observation, is that, you know, the first commandment says, have no other gods before me. But then the second commandment is a technological or media way of reinforcing that same theology, because it says that we should not have any image of God. And... Um, it's, it would have seemed like God could have just made a sort of official Yahweh doll that everyone could buy at the local store, right? <laughs> this official sanctioned version of him that was, you know, a little better than all the rest of them. But I think what that would have done is is it would have subtly communicated that their God was just like all the other gods in the region. But by choosing specifically how to use media, or in this case, not to use media, then what God is, is doing is giving them a way of communicating something about him, that he is not like the other gods, that was even more powerful than just that statement, he's not like the other gods, that they enacted that through media. So God is doing some really interesting things right there, just in the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Well, they were, they were given, they, the people of Israel, us as their spiritual descendants, we were given something to, to lock into, to, to hold on to. Neil Postman uh, fascinates me. In Technopoly, uh, he seems to develop this negative side of, of that you referred to er- earlier, that we have mm-hmm. both uh, you know, the, good, the good that can come from technology and, and the negative side. One quote that, um, that kind of strikes here at a different, in a different way, he said, I'm constantly amazed at how obediently people accept explanations that begin with the words, the computer shows, or the computer has determined. It is Technopoly's equivalent of the sentence, it is God's will, and the effect is roughly the same. How how much do we today, you know, just react to something because technology points us in a direction uh, without really examining how God might have us think about that mm. technology or that quote unquote fact uh, mm. that is brought to us? Yeah, I think it, when you know when Postman's writing, he's he's still a little bit assuming the the world in which people were probably consuming more newspapers and those kinds of things, and that that their authorities were coming from studies. So that if a study showed, or if it came out of Harvard or something like that, mm-hmm. or if it came from a certain speaker, that those authorities really really mattered to us. Um, I think you're seeing an equivalent in a different way today in the way that we're sharing a lot of content on social media. So that it, it seems as though we really do believe if it was written online that it must be true. And even even though um, that's, that's almost a joke, we still seem to have believed it deeply. And I think you saw this uh, a bit in the kind of election era back in, you know, in um, October and November, where there was a, a fair amount of news that wasn't really true being generated by sites that just wanted money. 
Mm-hmm. It was you see it a little bit on both sides of the aisle that there were stories on both sides that were that were false, but they they um, kind of reinforced a narrative that someone already had, and so they were willing to you know immediately believe that because there was a website and one of their friends had shared it. And I think today, you know, our relationship with the media, we're certainly seeing. I, I think. Um, we're seeing our our new administration is having a slightly different relationship to both the media as reporters, but also to their own use of the way that they broadcast information, and certainly the way that the president has has used um, Twitter as a, as a platform both before and now during his presidency. So I think this gives us an opportunity to examine. Um, where we get things from and and where we consider to be sources of truth and getting back to the um the question that we uh, we talked about earlier about how every technology values something um i think the internet often values speed in a way that can sometimes be very helpful and sometimes not very helpful so it it is certainly helpful to value speed in an emergency situation when we need to know where the tornado is or something like that. Um, when it comes to deeper thoughts about policy and respect for people, sometimes that speed can be somewhat negative. And the, when you see a news item on your feed, um, the faster you react to it, the, probably the worse that reaction might end up being. Um, and technology makes that available to us. And um, again, and sometimes it can be so great because we can immediately respond to someone's need for prayer or um, or we can rejoice with someone when something wonderful happens. But when it comes to something that um, heightens our emotion in some way, it may be a good good chance for us to slow down and to value a kind of a human speed over the value of, of high speed that technology can give us. Mm-hmm. Sure. In uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, uh, the verse says, take every thought captive to Christ. And mm-hmm. I'm just thinking that so much of what we're talking about, um, if you're if you're doing that in in a in a hurry, you're doing something in a hurry. Well, turn that thought to Christ. If you're mm-hmm. thinking about your technology, uh, turn it over to Christ. How, how much time mm-hmm. should I spend on the internet? How much time do I devote to this or that? It, it, and then how do I think about these issues? And so, technology, in a sense. Um, Gives us a different vantage point, a broader vantage point. Uh, uh, mm. Maybe it sometimes uh, it seems like we're over, overwhelmed by information, doesn't mm. it? It does, yeah. And you know um, that information overload is the term you often hear today with all of that. And it's fun to look back in history and see that you know Solomon and uh, and Kohelet he writes about of the making of books. There's no end. And in his era, he felt that to some degree. And you know, right after the uh, the printing press, you see people complaining about their they used to be able to read every single book ever published, and now they weren't able to. And you know, even in the era of the telegraph, you see people complaining about nobody writes letters anymore. So to some degree, that's always been happening. Um, but I do think that, that you're right that there is a, um, a newness to this era of, of speed and, and uh, feeling like there's so much information that um, sometimes it's also called the, the fear of missing out. So F-O-M-O, FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. That not only is there a lot of information, but there's a lot of social activity going on. And there's a, a number of studies that show that oftentimes when people open up Facebook, that because they're presented with the best day of each of their friends' lives, 
that compared to the day that they just had, um, which may involve you know cleaning up diapers or you know a bad day at work or or something like that, um, that it can make them feel more depressed at the end. So the the effect is that it looks like everybody else is having more fun than me, and so that begins to um, to create a world of, of depression and anxiety and those kinds of things. So I think we need to be you know watching out for not just um, that information overload, but also our just own finitude that we are simply not going to be able to have every single day look perfect and that we're not going to be able to know everything and just to embrace that we are not little gods, but that we have a short amount of time on this earth and the ways that we spend it um, can be very, very important. And I think uh, one one more little notice on that is that most of us, um, we are often aware of tragedies happening around the, around the globe and there's so much pain and Despair, and I think knowing about those things can be excellent, and they enable us to pray for people and to do things. Um, but I think that there's also can be a false sense of of our own involvement. So that if we, you know, click a like or share a link or change our profile picture, we feel as though we've done something, and, and maybe in some small sense we have. And yet at the same time, that that may mean that we know more about the marriages of celebrities than we do about the marriages down the street from us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we know more about um, maybe the, the tragedies around the world, which are which are true important for us to think about, but the small things of, of, of our neighbors um, are just, they're much more challenging to put yourself out there and know. So every time I, you know, see something online, I think, man, what, what do I really know about the world where God has, has actually placed me? Sure. Yeah, and that's and and sometimes it's as simple as uh, being outside at five o'clock when your neighbor's coming home, so you can talk to them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, John, in your in your book, you've you've got some really thoughtful ideas about how we deal with technology uh, as mm-hmm. as Christians, and I want to be sure that we we talk about that some, so that people have a uh, some hope and and something concrete that they can really. You know, put on put on into their life as they're thinking mm. about their own interaction with technology. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the the big things is when you start to open up thinking about technology and all the different ways that it can shape you, it can get a little bit scary. And I think um, as good as it is to know all those things, we also want to value, especially in an area like Austin, San Antonio, that have such vibrant tech sectors. We want to remember that part about the the image of God and the creativity that's in us, and to be encouraging those around us who are tech workers that they are doing something that I think can honor God just in just in doing good work in the tech sector. So I think one of those is is valuing that, and I think starting out with just being willing to experiment with new things and realize that um, as, as good as it is to think about technology ahead of time um, and to try to think about its impact, sometimes you just have to try things in order to know. Mm-hmm. And the tech industry does such a great uh, has such a great phrase about they wanting to fail fast, to try things, to learn from your failure, to not be afraid of failure. So I think um, you know, as Christians, we we deeply want to be holy and we want to live lives that honor God, but sometimes that can make us a little bit afraid to try something and to fail. So Mm -hmm. I think experimenting with technology, trying new things, whether that means sort of going forward and trying a new thing, learning how to use Snapchat, for example, or trying an older thing like buying a newspaper and seeing what it's like to pay for your own news. That kind of experimentation can be really, really good. And I think that can help us with deciding um, what are the values in all the technology that I'm comfortable with and in the ones I'm uncomfortable with. So starting out with that, you know, experimentation and then being able to 
start to understand the values of it, and then deciding where in your own life you might want to place some limits on things. And, you know, we, we all have had to learn how to place limits on, for example, the food that we intake. We have infinite food, but we know we can't take it all in without making ourselves unhealthy. And the same thing is going to be true of, you know, technology and information that when, when we understand, you know, the, the uh, nutritional benefits of McDonald's versus maybe um, making a salad, um, that that's okay sometimes, but, but, uh, but deciding how much we're going to have in there. And then I think, uh, again, we talked earlier about how much of our technology is um, really focused on giving us strong individual preferences, that stepping out of that, um, that value of the individual and really wanting to step into community and just talk about um, with one another, what do you see in my own life and the way that I use technology? How do I present myself online and how do I present myself in person and how are those things actually going? And those can lead to some really fruitful discussions. Mm-hmm. So being vulnerable in community about technology mm-hmm. is probably a new thought to a lot of us. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I mean, again, uh, most of our world is, is valuing, you know, the individual and, and our preferences and what we like. And, you know, Burger King says, have it your way, right? Mm-hmm. And almost all of the uh, the phone companies now make multiple sizes and cases and all of these things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but neither is it, to use our phrase earlier, neither is it entirely neutral. Mm-hmm. It does shape us and push us in a particular direction. And um, sometimes we're, we're, uh, we're blind to ourselves in so many ways, and we need somebody else to show us, um, just like the, you know, the technology of the mirror <clears throat> was able to show people what they really look like. Mm-hmm. We need our friends around us to be our own mirrors to show us what's going on spiritually in our lives. Yeah. Well, for some reason, I'm, I'm having a mental image of John Wayne riding a cyber horse, you know, kind of the, <laughs> the picture yeah. of independence and the, and the strong man. Well, uh, tell, tell us what you might think about encouraging people who are in technology, who are living their faith there. What can we, what can we do to, to be supportive? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think first off that that the reminder that I'm sure you've had in a lot of discussions about faith and work is that you know certainly in our workplaces we can evangelize, we can um, share the gospel, we can do things morally. But I think just reminding ourselves that all work is valuable to God, and that when we do things you know with with excellence, I think I think that honors God. I think He wants us to be doing work and all kinds of work from um, from teachers to people who are you know that are janitors to people who are in the high tech industry. All of those jobs honor God, and I think we want to value those um, uniquely. And then I think, too, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of coming problems. You know, one of the um, the ones that's probably most on our minds is we're all seeing that the self-driving car phenomenon coming in, and there's a lot going on, obviously, in the Austin area with regard to that technology. And, and those present some really interesting, you know, moral and ethical dilemmas about if a car, the famous trolley problem, right, if a car can choose between hitting one person or moving and hitting um, someone who's older or, or somebody who's sick or someone who's a criminal, should it should it do that? Um, and, I, and I think having believers there who are able to bring the kingdom values into those kinds of questions is just such an important role, something that a pastor can never do. Um, is be there on those discussions when um, when new technologies are being discussed. The same thing with you know so many medical technologies and what those value. Um, there's such a burgeoning industry about um, the way that life is being treated and, and being both at creation and at death. 
Mm-hmm. So I think those who are working in there just are, are really doing so much to shape really the future of humanity, and um, they need our our prayers and our support and our, and, and their understanding, and also to just um, have that joy of of making new things and of trying things and being okay with knowing that some things are going to fail and that and that's okay, um, but at the same time to be doing what we can to be thinking through the impact. I think um, you know a lot of technology in the 20th century really didn't think through its impact on natural resources and on on the earth and um, on the the beautiful creation that God gave us. They they certainly cultivated, but they didn't necessarily care for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Christians can be a, uh, a voice for that in both creating new things, but also in, in trying to help uh, keep the beauty of God's creation there. Sure. Back to Genesis uh, 1 and 2, the mandate for creation care. Well, Indeed. John, thank you. It's been it's been encouraging and challenging to to hear your thoughts on technology and faith, and and uh, I think there's there's so much more. I would encourage everyone to read mm-hmm. John's book, uh, From the Garden to the City: The Redeeming and Corrupting Power of Technology, by John Dyer. And um, John, we really appreciate it. So I want to thank our audience for being with us today. I want to thank you, John, for being with us. Uh, I hope that uh, our audience will visit our website, HillCountryInstitute.org, to listen to podcasts of our previous programs and on iTunes at Hill Country Institute Live. We have audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues, and we also uh, cover and think about environmental stewardship and fighting human trafficking. We ask for your financial support for this program so that we can pay the radio station and continue to be on the air. Uh, You can donate at our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, or by calling 512-680-7993, hillcountryinstitute.org, and 512-680-7993. For donations of $100 or more, we'll send you a copy of John Dyer's book, From the Garden to the City, The Redeeming and Corrupting Power of Technology. To close, I think we can all benefit from this line from John's book, not only as we think about technology, but as we think about all of life. Rather than be shaped by technology, I try to understand how each new technology can shape me and then decide if that coincides with the kind of person I think God would have me be. Thank you again for being with us for Hill Country Institute Live. We encourage you to share the love of Christ wherever God calls you.